Hello, my name is Spencer Stewart, and welcome to another episode of our Advancing Talent podcast. I am so thrilled to introduce and speak with this week's guest, Angela Chang Simony. She is the Senior Vice President of Talent and the Chief Human Resources Officer at Harvard Business Publishing. Uh, Angela, I feel like we need to turn the tables, and you very much are the expert uh, in, uh, in our discussion today. Uh, Harvard Business Publishing really needs no introduction. Uh, this is a global publishing house where it seems, Angela, all the breakthrough ideas originate when it comes to best practices in management uh, and leadership. I certainly uh, am a big fan of uh, Harvard Business Publishing. But Angela has over 30 years of comprehensive experience across all facets of uh, uh, human resources. Uh, she has worked in uh, consumer products, high-tech, manufacturing, the list goes on and on, professional services, nonprofit. Uh, Angela, welcome to the show. It's so wonderful to have you. Thank you so much. I'm happy to be here. Angela, let's get right to it. Um, I had a great deal of um, interest looking at your background. Uh, 30 years is not a small amount of time. Um, and over four, five, six different industries, it feels like you have been there, done that, seen everything. Can you speak a little bit to how you ended up where you are today? I think our listeners would really appreciate learning about your journey and where that originated. That's right. I really appreciate that question because I am a case study in um, what happens when you sort of just go with what comes your way. Um, my career has not been strategically engineered in any way. The reason I am in the seat that I'm in, and I'm incredibly grateful for the opportunity to serve at Harvard Business Publishing, is frankly, we were coming out of COVID. And so my husband and I decided to have dinner with some very, very dear friends of ours who we hadn't seen in two years because we were all in lockdown. And she turns to me at the very beginning of dinner, so how's your job? As we are wont to do, is so we're catching up. And I said, actually, I'm, I'm, I'm not doing very well. I'm not that happy. And she said, well, I happen to have an opportunity that I'm working on. She was, she's a recruiter. And six weeks later, I was in the job. So had we not had that dinner, she would not have known that I was unhappy. And I would not have known that she was looking for the next chief HR officer. And that opportunity would have completely passed me by. And I think there was some force in the universe that brought us together at that moment. I squeaked in. They were already at the finalist stage. I squeaked in at the very last moment um, to put my put my name in the hat, and uh, it turned out very well. But even just my career leading up to that, it's really sort of pretty serpentine. It's not a straight line. Um, as you said, my career spans lots of different industries with companies at different life cycles. I've never been anywhere longer than three years, Spencer, which up until very recently has been a liability on my resume because it looks like I can't hold down a job. <laughs> Um, but actually these days, you know, three year stint is plenty for lots of employers, right? You get time to ramp up, you have plenty of time to make an impact. And if you're no longer challenged, people understand that you're going to look around for 
other other horizons to pursue. And so over the course of my 30 years, I have had now a very rich tapestry with very many different experiences that might appear to be haphazard, but there's actually a logical transition between roles. And at another time, I can tell that story as well. Um, but I think it has now benefited me because I've been able to experience a lot of different contexts through which one consistent factor has been that HR is the same regardless of where you're applying it. How you inspire people, how you make organizations drive a culture where people can really bring their best version is the same whether you're in consumer product goods, whether you're in a museum, whether you're in a startup, or even an organization in decline. Those are all true um, regardless. So if you understand the practice of good HR and what progressive leadership looks like, you can be successful anywhere. Well, I love that, Angela. And there are so many nuggets in what you just shared. I think the first for me, and I've been trying to capture all of them, but the first for me may be the most simple. And that is sitting down with dear friends that you hadn't seen for a while and being open and honest. I was trying to put myself in your position where when people ask, hey, how are you doing? How's your job? I think the knee-jerk reaction is, oh, great. Everything's fine. Everything's good. And for me, as I've had the great fortune of interviewing uh, individuals who oversee human capital initiatives, one of the themes that comes out is the ability or the desire to be very open and vulnerable. And so I'm wondering, Angela, as you think about your career in various sectors with various senior leadership teams, you know, can you think of a time where either because you were vulnerable um, or because you saw that in others, it really helped you work through a particular issue where it made you stronger as a team or it made you a better leader. Anything come to mind uh, uh, in terms of being very transparent, very open, and perhaps to some degree somewhat vulnerable? So I think the stories are a lot easier to tell when you are in an environment where you're working for a leader or manager who's practicing that themselves, right? So when they role model vulnerability and transparency, it's easier to reciprocate and respond in kind. I think the challenge comes when you find yourself in a situation where that's not what you see as the accepted behavior. And so much of what we publish in, in Harvard Business Review is what contemporary leadership looks like today. And it is those exact things, vulnerability, transparency, openness, vulnerability, right? Those are, those are skills that weren't, weren't asked of leaders even 10 years ago. And so I think the story that comes to my mind is when I was true to myself and I made myself vulnerable because I was willing to say, hey, this is where I am right now. And in a sort of short form, you can take it or leave it. Um, because I'm here for myself, I'm here to advocate for myself. Not that it was, not that it was um, completely selfish, but I was being mistreated in a moment, and I decided that I was going to speak up. And if the consequences were that I was going to be asked to leave the organization, 
all the better because frankly, it wasn't a good place for me to be. And what happened was actually later that day, I got an apology from a, from a very senior who had a reputation of not being kindly to people who were not at his level. And I decided that I was either going to stand up for myself and consequences be damned, or I was not going to, and I was going to rue the day that I didn't speak up. And so in those moments of vulnerability, you really find out who you are and what you're made of. And as I've often recounted to people, those moments are hard, but it's even harder when you're going home that day and you say, I should have said this. I wish I had said this. I wish I had stood up for myself. Those moments when you have to look at yourself in the mirror, those are much, much harder than when you speak up for yourself in the moment because you're your own harshest critic. I love that example. I mean, there is so much leadership, um, you know, coming from you and coming from that, uh, coming from that example. Let me shift gears a little bit, uh, Angela. Um, I heard you say that whether it's consumer goods or nonprofit or manufacturing or tech, the principles within uh, talent development, human resources, um, people development, th they're portable. Uh, you can take them from domain to domain or industry to industry. And I think that's very true. At the same time, nothing ever stays the same. Uh, I think we've all learned something uh, from the pandemic. So while the principles may be the same, I would think how we interface with those principles uh, may change as a result of technology. So I I'm wondering, you know, whether it's performance management or like people analytics or compensation benefits, um, what are the things that are changing? What are the skill sets that perhaps newly minted graduates within human resources, what are the things that they should be paying attention to beyond just the principles themselves, if that makes sense? So I will say before I, I get to the heart of your question is that um, the, the advice that I'll share is not just for those who are interested in the HR space. It is relevant for anybody who intends to be a leader. And our supposition at Harvard Business Publishing is that everybody is a leader. You are a leader of yourself. You are a leader of your work. You may direct a project. You may direct a sliver of some much larger effort, and you may become a manager of others. But in some form or fashion, you are always showing up as a leader. And so, the things that we do fundamentally in HR that fall into the discipline, comp and benefits, learning and development, talent acquisition, yes, those are specific pillars within human resources, but the principles that you talk about, those are really of leadership. And I believe those govern, should govern, how everybody shows up at work. So I think there are things that maybe are applied differently because you are in tech or because you're in nonprofit but I think at the end of the day, it really comes down to what are the things you need to do so that people, when they show up at work, can do their very best? How do you pay them? How do you develop them? 
How do you select them to be part of your team so that they are the most successful candidates? It's not unlike the admissions process to, to a university, right? There are reasons why you choose one applicant over another. And it's not because one is less talented or the other, but there is something different in that special sauce that says the environment that we're providing can really bring out the best in them. And so it's not, not necessarily a, a personal judgment on that person, but they just can take better advantage of the things we have to offer. And they might be better suited elsewhere. So the application of the principles, I think, is where it shows up differently depending on the context. But always as a leader, again, whether of yourself or of others, top of mind is, are you treating them with respect? Are you making sure they have opportunities to be heard? And if there is bias in the system that keeps people from doing that, you have to identify them and get at them as soon as possible. Um, because there is a knock-on effect. Even if you're only marginalizing one segment of your community, others will perceive that. And it, they will cast judgment on what that means for the principles of the organization, because really every organization should be welcoming for every day. It, it, it's, it's making me think about the modern relationship or the changing relationship between an employer and an yes. employee. And one of the things that we've been hearing from employers and employees is this sense or renewed sense or desire to belong. And and how we belong, I think, is taking on a different uh, or deeper meanings. Angela, can you speak to uh, how you um, create a sense of belonging, whether that's at um, you know, Harvard Publishing or in with your previous employers? Can you speak to that? I think in the work context, it is imperative that you articulate clearly for your employees what the value set is. What's important to you? Is your environment one that is ultra competitive? Is it one where you drive results at all costs? Is it one where you value um, the fact that people come from the same industry as you? I, went, I worked for two companies where the CEOs only wanted to hire from very particular colleges and universities, and they didn't want to entertain candidates from anywhere else. That was part of their DNA. And now I work for a company where we actually have waived all educational requirements. We don't care where or if you went to university. What we care about are your skills and your experience. And if that can compensate for the fact that you didn't pay for a very expensive diploma, more power to you, right? So that is part of who we have become over time. So once you make clear for people what the expectations are, then people can decide for themselves whether or not it's a place where they can belong. Then once they've made that purchasing decision, once they were a consumer of that, then you have to make good on that promise. You have to deliver on that value proposition that when they show up, you will accept them as they are, that you will make, make space for them to disagree you will make space for them to think differently, to challenge the status quo, and to do so without fear of retaliation or retribution or any other sort of negative consequence. And that in fact, at its very best, that you actually celebrate the fact that someone dares to be different and dares to challenge and think differently. Because over time, 
and I say this to our new hires, over time you will become assimilated, right? You will learn our methodologies. You will understand how this place works and you will become one of us for better, for worse. And that means that you sometimes lose the fresh perspective that comes when you're just joining something new. You no longer ask, why do we do it that way? Because you start to think that's the way we've always done. So belonging definitely morphs over time. Um, but I think it is incumbent upon the organization to clearly dictate what the values are, how decisions are made, how we expect people to engage with one another. And then you have to make good on that by being consistent and predictable in that practice. What unsettles people the most is when they don't know the rules and they don't understand why a decision today doesn't hold tomorrow or that you will make a different decision with the very same facts. That is very, very unsettling. It is very disorienting. And it makes for a very destabilized workforce population. People want to know what they're walking into and so that they can make decisions consistent with that. And given that managers can't be everywhere all at once, I cannot stand over the thousand decisions every employee makes. That consistency is the key to allowing people to feel autonomous, to give them agency, and therefore belong. You've said a few things that I want to unpack a bit. Um, the first one is, and I find so much rich, richness uh, in this point, is that you have moved away from a, a, a traditional um, talent pipeline, moving away from a credential or where someone earned a credential to more of a open competency-based or skills-based hiring practice. I, I think a number of organizations are, are wanting to go in this direction. They're trying to figure this out. Some of them are talking about it, but perhaps haven't quite internalized it. Can you speak to the rationale, the logic, the thought process that went into, you know, Harvard publishing, uh, moving away? from this traditional approach to one that is more open. And I find it so interesting, Angela, that you shared that point as we were talking about belonging and, and whether this approach actually yields to uh, an environment where there is perhaps more inherent belonging. So I, I'd, love to, <laughs> yeah. I, I'd love to understand everything that went into that, Angela. So, I mean, I'm, I'm cognizant of the audience, right? I'm talking to university and alumni and graduates. So don't misunderstand. I think there's tremendous you know, value in higher education. And, of course, we're an organization of continuous learning. So anything in the space that has to do with learning um, brings value for us. But when we think about leveling the playing field and really opening up the aperture of the, of the funnel to candidates, every obstacle that you can remove so that people can at least express an interest gives us a conduit to talent that otherwise might have been cut off. So if we say that it is absolutely required that you have a baccalaureate, that you have a four-year degree, then you have automatically taken out, I don't know, some percentage of your population who didn't, who didn't want, who couldn't afford, or for whatever reason, did not take advantage of that opportunity. And I think there is so much to be said about and equivalent experience, right? So. I, I think it was kind of an easy decision. Why have that gating factor when we have plenty of use cases where people didn't have a four-year degree um, and have been hugely successful in their careers? 
So it seemed actually like a really easy leap and we didn't do it with a lot of discussion. It just seemed like, yeah, let's do that. And, and we have, and there's been no detriment at all to our hiring process. I want to speak to your role specifically within Harvard Publishing. And as I understand it, Angela, uh, you have roughly, I don't know if I'm going to get the numbers right, maybe between 2,500 to 3,000 employees within the organization spread across multiple continents. This is a kind of a, a multinational operation creating, maintaining, recreating culture is not an easy thing to do. Uh, I think time and space actually makes it more more challenging. That's an assumption. It may be a false assumption. Um, how do you, um, as you know, the senior vice president of, of talent and, and human resources, going back to this point of belonging and feedback and input, uh, how do you create culture uh, across, uh, you know, geographic distance? How, how do you how do you do that? Can you speak to that? I think our listeners would be very interested in that. So we're actually a lot smaller than that, Spencer. We're only about six hundred employees, okay. um, but we are in we are multinational for sure, and certainly the the brand is global. So I think. One of the things, even if you just speak sort of anthropologically, you know, what sort of builds culture is shared language, shared rituals, shared experiences. And that's how I think about culture in this context. So when I mean shared language, that's our values. So here at Harvard Business Publishing, we have three pillars to our values. Do what's right, do what's hard, and do it with excellence. And it has been such a remarkable addition to how we talk to one another because we invoke it organically all the time. So we had to make a difficult decision to part ways with some of our colleagues, but we knew that it was right to do it. We knew that it was really, really hard. So we wanted to make sure that the process by which we said goodbye to those people, we did it with excellence. So we allowed them to leave with dignity and with grace. Um, and we help them leave with their head held high. And so that's a common language. In terms of shared experiences, we try to have all staff meetings, all hands meetings where people can participate through chat and they can get their questions answered in real time. And we have an anonymous line that goes directly to the executive team so people can ask their questions without fear. We are trying to build um, uh, learning opportunities so that people can get together with other parts of the organization that they don't normally interact with. We have built out a very robust career pathing system that really promotes internal mobility so people can move across the organization with ease. Um, and we are trying to find other ways to come together so that we can have a shared sense of who, it, who we are. What does it mean to be part of Harvard Business Publishing? Um, our mission is, you know, to help leaders move the world forward. Um, we are a, a nonprofit. And one of the things I really like about what we do is that we're not creating another widget that ends up in the landfill or in our ocean. We're in the marketplace of ideas. And it's something that people can really rally around. So having a common mission is another way that helps our culture be sticky and helps people really understand how they fit into the larger effort of why we exist 
Um, and so though all of those things have to be super intentional because without language, without experiences, without a sense of community, you don't really have a culture. You just sort of have a random collective of people who happen to have their paychecks signed by the same person. So it is an ongoing piece of work and we are constantly challenged by having to make sure that the messages, that the work that we do is multiplied and amplified throughout the organization. And we don't always get it right. There are often instances of telephone where the message at the other end was not how it started. So we have to constantly revisit um, and repeat in different modes and different mediums so that everybody can share it and absorb it over time. Um, so it's, it's ongoing work for sure. Yeah, fascinating thinking about culture anthropologically, you know, shared language, shared ritual, shared passion, shared mission. Uh, speaking of passion, you know, what are some of your passion projects right now, Angela? What, what is really getting you out of bed in the morning? <laughs> well, beyond, the, beyond, beyond my work, um, because I really, I really do love it. I, I, I feel like I'm having an impact and uh, the team that, that I'm surrounded by is, is amazing. Um, from the executive team to the HR team to all the other teams that I interact with, they're just a really talented and committed group of individuals. Uh, that in and of itself is enough to help me get out of bed. But with the, the onslaught of the pandemic, I was really in search of my own community. Um, so I was looking for others who had a shared experience as an Asian American. Um, I identify as Taiwanese American. Um, I am second generation, so my parents came over in search of a better life, of a better education. And with the rise of anti-Asian hate in America, I really wanted to find a community who understood how that felt viscerally. And so I started volunteering. I started joining up and belonging to memberships and other communities so that I could express my support, so I could process my grief, um, but that I could also find a really positive way to channel all of that pent-up anger, truly in some moments. And so I, I fancy myself an advocate and a champion for the Asian American Pacific Islander community. So I've been finding moments and ways to pay it forward by paying it back. Um, so I've been doing a lot of speaking, I've been doing a lot of volunteering, um, but it's something that's really tapped into a part of me personally that has been enriching, not just for me, but hopefully for the audiences that I get to reach out and touch. So um, that's, been a, that's been a newfound passion for me the last week. You know, so commendable. I, I want to shift gears a little bit and go back to where you started, where I think you admitted that your career trajectory has perhaps by some accounts been non-traditional yes, <laughs> or, or not linear. And I suspect that many individuals who are starting in their profession or thinking about what profession to get into very much think about career in a very, very linear fashion. And I would think that there perhaps came a point in your career, uh, I think serpentine is the word you used, where it's not necessarily point A to point B. We might have to go left. We might have to go right. Um, but did you ever have to wrestle with the notion that your career should be linear? And if it's not, you may be doing something 
wrong. I would think that there may be some some listeners who feel that if my career is not linear, I am doing something wrong. Can you maybe speak to some of the, you know, uh, uh, emotional wrestling and logic that that you used uh, to get to where you are now? Which I think many of our listeners would say, "Oh, Angela is in such a a pinnacle position." <laughs> Well, like I said, that was that was just pure serendipity. I mean, before I landed here, I'd actually sort of given up on the ambition of ever becoming a chief HR officer. I sort of figured that I had peaked at vice president um, and that I would never get to work for such a marquee organization. Um, and that's, you know, that's not what happened. And I, I will say that recruiters were the ones who planted the deepest seeds of doubt because, you know, they're in the business of judging your career choices and and really they're the gating factors to whether or not you get the next opportunity. And so I did a lot of self-reflection and I think ultimately what I discovered was that so long as I was learning as, and I was growing and I was in an organization where I could have impact and I felt like I belonged, um, that was the career that I wanted to market. And that it didn't matter if at the end of the day I could make a million dollars or if I could land on the cover of Time Magazine as Chief HR Executive Officer of the Year, right? None of that really mattered, even though those were the lofty designs I had at the very, very beginning of my career. Um, and I'm fortunate now to have realized that, right, in, in some version of that. But I think, I think you, you have to, to, to sort of back to your point about what gets you up in the morning. And ultimately, what motivates me is not that um it's not it's not all the accolades and it's not the fancy titles um although it's for sure nice to have and no judgment on those to whom want to attain that because there is value certainly um in being able to ascend to those echelons of corporate um but i i was able to move find learnings and a silver lining in each one of those experiences, even those that ended less, uh, you know, less well than I would have liked. But I can look back now and say, I was meant to be there. There was a reason I was there at that point in time. And there are things that I can look back on and say, I did some good while I was there. It wasn't all, it wasn't all bad, both for me and for that organization. Um, and then putting it all together, that's sort of my career history. And it is what it is, right? I can't go back and rewrite it. So it also doesn't help to belabor those mistakes. And there have been failures. There was one stint where I only lasted six months before I washed it. Just was a bad choice. Um, and a bad choice for them, ultimately, I think. Um, so, I, you know, I wouldn't, I would, I would encourage your listeners not to fuss too much about having a perfectly engineered career path, because I don't think that exists. I think the career path is the one that's part discovery and part intention, um, because isn't that sort of just reflective of life? Right, the best laid plans don't ever go the way. Like maybe you thought you were going to be married and have kids by such and such a need, and you find yourself that that's not at all what life really intended for you. Um, and it's either lemons or lemonade, based on your perspective. <laughs> I love that advice. Now I have to chuckle a little bit with my next question. I typically put this question to our guests, but I've never interviewed one before that works at a well-known publisher. And the question is, where do you go for inspiration? Where do you seek inspiration? Are there some go-to sources that you have? Are there any 
uh, books or articles or authors that you're really uh, following uh, right now? I, I suspect, uh, now that I think about this question, you can just look at what your printing queue looks like uh, and, you know, <laughs> and what's next. <laughs> uh, but uh, where do you uh, turn for inspiration, Angela? That's a great question, Spencer, and I'm really happy to answer it. I, I wish it was a book that we published, but it, it has it existed for a very long time. It's the book called The Four Agreements, um, and I don't know if you're familiar with that, but I take a lot of inspiration for that. I I spend much of my life, and it surprises me every now and then with a lot of self-doubt, you know, the whole imposter syndrome. And one of the four agreements is that you agree to just do your best. And so if every day... Um, you do your best, then it frees you from the judgment of others because there was no more that you could give. And if the best you could do was second place and you disappointed someone or you fell short, but you yourself knew that you put your very best effort, then that's all anybody can ever ask of you. And so the disappointment is on them because I'm not disappointed in myself. I prepared, I studied, I did whatever it is I could to show up that day, the best version. Which is not to say that every day you will be your perfect version, but that in that moment, that is who you are. You are present and you are giving all the energy you have. And sometimes you might be operating on less than a tank. And that's okay because that definitely happens. Um, but just accept yourself to know that that is who you are at your very best um, is really freeing of the judgment of others. And I just find that so liberating because don't we all so much operate in what do other people think? and did I miss out on something? And did I win? Did I lose? Is and it and and being able to just sort of let that all go has been hugely, hugely inspirational for me. And there are other nuggets in there, like don't take things so personally. So often it's not about you; it's about what's going on for the other person in their life at that moment. Um, and just giving them space um, to reflect that, yeah, we're not at the center of their universe at their moment. Um, so I really encourage that as a read for your listeners, The Four Agreements. What a great prompt to read or reread uh, The Four Agreements. Angela, thank you so much for your time and sharing your hard-won wisdom with us. <laughs> now, I have to ask, I suspect you're always looking for really good talent. Uh, where can our listeners go to learn more? about Harvard Publishing. Do you have a website or a URL that we can direct them to? It is so not ironic that you asked that question because we just had this discussion. We actually don't have a Harvard Business Publishing website, but you can learn about us. Harvard Business Review has a website. If you do Google Harvard Business Publishing, you will find information about each of our business units. And through that, you can learn a lot about what's important to us and how we show up um, in the marketplace and how we're making a difference in the world. Um, I am still trying to get a corporate website out there, so thank you for re-energizing that effort. Um, I, we have saved the domain. We own it. Now um, I just now need to make good on it. Um, but if any of your listeners have any questions about us, um, I am the only Angela Cheng Simony on LinkedIn. Just share that you heard about me on this podcast with Spencer Stewart, and I'd be happy to connect. Thank you so much, Angela. Pleasure speaking with you. Thank you for having me.